Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa buddhang dhammang sangang namasami. Traditional start to a Dhamma talk, even uh, on via YouTube. <laughs> Just a recollection that we owe a lot to the Buddha and his teachings and those who have maintained it throughout the years, the, the Sangha. And uh, that's nice to connect with. And this practice, which we'll be discussing for the next 10 days, and not just talking about, but trying to immerse in this practice of profound friendliness and goodwill is the hallmark of the life of the Buddha and all of his close disciples who had developed their consciousness they are all, without exception, full of goodwill and loving kindness for each other, the Sangha, the humans, and all beings on the planet and beyond the planet even. You can think about this as a very large cosmic vision encompassing as far as your mind wants to go to travel in this universe. We don't know whether it's finite or infinite, but whatever beings are in the universe, we are cultivating a sense of good wishes for them, goodwill for them. And the Buddha is probably the first person in history to really describe that unconditional, expansive loving kindness. And we see other examples later on in different religions, but usually they're directed towards uh, the human realm. The Buddha is very advanced, far ahead. Now, in modern times, we, we include and understand that the higher animals, at least, do have sensitivities and have a fear of, of, for their lives and etc. So we also include them in uh, our compassion and our goodwill. Of course, you, many of you have pets and so forth, and you form great bonds with them. And sometimes you learn what, uh, what true friendliness is, what unconditional goodwill is from, from your dog. <laughs> so we, this seems to be pervasive and an aspect, something built right into the universe. And it's, it's a kind of a, for some people, it's a circuit which lies within them but has not been uh, revealed to them. And when it is, it transforms their lives. So the way we're raised sometimes and the culture we're in or the family that we're in doesn't know about this emotion and doesn't communicate it to us. So we have not learned about it. So it's never too late though. This also is a, uh, a mark of the Buddha's teaching is that at any age that one can uh, discover this, that it's a feature of consciousness. And when the negative structures of consciousness have been disarmed, put to sleep for a while, the positive ones are unveiled. Primarily that they're there already they don't have to actually be created. They're actually there. It's the nature of consciousness. 
the Buddha remarked on the nature of consciousness when it's not being harassed by uns its own unskillful practices, its own unskillful emotional structures, when it is relaxed and not under duress from them, something emerges from consciousness itself. And this is nothing personal. It's not from your consciousness because you don't know where, where your consciousness comes from. You can't really be the owner of your consciousness. It just arises. We don't, I mean, it's the, one of the most mysterious things in the universe. How does the human mind work? These days they're studying the human brain and they find it the most complex system in the universe. They haven't come across anything quite comparable to it. But the Buddha was exploring it not as a scientist, not as a neurologist, but as a introspective, contemplative person looking into themselves. And he didn't just look into the intellectual workings of the mind. So Buddhism is not some sort of impressive philosophy. Buddhism is primarily directed to the emotions, more or less what we would call the heart. How do you feel? And there is an exploration and inquiry into that. And so all of the ideas that are in Buddhism should be always just as servants to that final end, the improvement of the quality of life, the quality of being, the inner life. And by the way, if we do improve the quality of our inner life, the outer life also will improve not only the community life, but every aspect of it. When you can come across these skillful emotions like loving kindness, all your views and how you engage with the world changes. As you change yourself, then your relationship to the world changes and also your understanding of the world. As you mm, come out from behind unskillful types of emotions, and emerge into the sunshine of well-being and ease, then you also begin to have a great sympathy for those who have not found their way out of the shadows. Because having been in the shadows, you know what it's like. It's dark and cold. It's confusing. It's alienating. It's lonely. And as you emerge from this, then you feel this profound sense of rightness, which does not have to be explained. In fact, cannot be explained. The feeling cannot ever be put into words, although I am going to try for the next nine days <laughs> to try to articulate it. I'll be drawing from the teachings of the Buddha and the, the Buddha, what he left behind in what we call the Pali Canon, the most extensive collection we can discover of the, the words of the historical Buddha is a repository, the largest gold mine on the planet of descriptions of this single emotion, loving kindness. I should say that loving kindness might better be translated as profound friendliness, unconditional good will and friendliness for yourself, for all beings. And the number of insights into it, the stories, the parables, the similes, the metaphors, the analogies that the Buddha gives, the way he illustrates this is certainly the largest 
repository. Think of it as the biggest gold mine on the planet. And many of the stories have spread throughout the world and have found their way into other literature as well. He's a very creative person in terms of communication. He really understands how to communicate, how to find common ground with different people. He's talking to, of course, his primary audience would be mostly farmers and also people of other classes, the warrior class and the ruling class also encountered the Buddha and he talked to each type of person at the level that they were with the vocabulary that they had. He wasn't interested in holding to particular language ideas. One of the, the language of the Pali Canon is uh, what was now called Pali. It was from an area around Northern India, Magadha. The Buddha was very insistent that monks didn't cling to any particular traditional language, that the point of language is to communicate, and whatever language people use, that's the one that you should use to communicate with. So we try to find our way to communication, and that's, that's all that matters. But we will explore and mine these, this gold and bring out, because we have a leisurely amount of time, we have 10 days to fully explore. And I, I'm not particularly interested in making any of this stuff up myself or trying to introduce my own stories because we have such a collection uh, by the Buddha, a huge collection. Occasionally I'll have to look around in my own culture to explain things. I'm from Canada and uh, we don't have too many elephants here. <laughs> so when, when the Buddha compares something to a, how an elephant works, uh, I might have to move ahead in, in history and compare it to something else in, in modern Western culture. But this is kind of the function of the ongoing Sangha. So the Buddha realizes that people and situations change through time. And he's very keen on trying to get people from different cultures to train in the culture. And this will always be a, only a small portion of the population who will become monks and nuns or deeply study and, and become illuminated themselves as lay people that have the time, the interest. And, but it's very important that some portion of the population in each culture and country does that so that they can serve as a communication device. So the Sangha is not only for those who sacrifice their, their worldly life. So to become a monk, you give up your worldly life. To become a nun, you give up your worldly life. And even as an intense practitioner, a full, deep practitioner as a layperson, you abandon much of what preoccupies ordinary people's lay life. And we call it a sacrifice, but actually it's no sacrifice. It's to actually be unburdened. So we would say, we renounce kind of the burdens that most people live under. And most people living under certain kinds of burdens are under the illusion that they are not burdens, but precious possessions. <laughs> but they are actually burdened by their precious possessions. And quite often they are because those things give them certain kinds of limited or shallow happiness. And that's what they know. 
and who wants to get rid of even a shallow happiness is better than none. But the Buddha is very interested in enriching your life. So he unveils these deep truths about your mind and your heart. This comes as a surprise to some people that the Buddha can know more about what lies within you than you do. There are secrets, there are doors and passageways, doors behind doors behind doors. These are circuits within your consciousness, within the structure of your heart and mind that you may not have known are there. So the Buddha gives you little exercises and stories to help you find your way through. He is a, an explorer of his own inner space and there's two kinds of geniuses in the world, one which explores the outer world and then one which explores the inner world. And of the two, frankly, there is no comparison. However many Einsteins, Stephen Hawking's, or great scientists, great explorers, thank you for your information. But as we can see from the personal lives of people who do this, it is not necessarily emotionally illuminating for them. It is not freeing and enlightening to them in terms of their emotional dimensions but it's the inner journey. It's the geniuses of the inner journey that truly make life worth living. I'm not sure that if we were just in a world of mathematics and physics that life would be all that worth living. It's certainly a fine hobby, but <laughs> is it really worth, does it make it worthwhile? It's the inner dimensions of what it is to be a human it makes it worthwhile. And so this is kind of the most exalted of the emotions. There are other kinds of emotions which we will touch on as well in order to enhance this search for true, profound fullness. So one of the, one of the questions we have to start with is what are you talking about when you say loving kindness? What is it? So it is an emotion. And it's, a, it's also, we can't just say it's an emotion or a feeling, it's a kind of an expansive consciousness, an expansive form of consciousness. I almost hate to use the word consciousness because it has so many different meanings and so forth, but it's the way we truly feel about the universe around us, the, the world around us, the beings around us, and our own life. That's what I mean by consciousness. And the emotion is how we feel about it. So this thing we are referring to as loving kindness, metta, friendliness, is a feeling which is all-encompassing. So the way the Buddha talks about it is as a divine... Mm, abiding or place. The word in Pali is a Brahma Vihara. Vihara is a dwelling place, a mansion, a palace. And uh, Brahmas are more or less like high, highly developed angelic beings, heavenly beings. So where do highly developed angelic beings live? They live in very beautiful 
dwellings. Now, this is all a metaphor. Not necessarily that there is no nothing relating to it in external dimensions, but where you actually live is in your feelings. And so if you are all alone, undeveloped person living in a very large building by yourself, it's nothing but a, a prison. It's a horrible place. But if somebody comes to visit you and cheers you all up and you fall in love and you have a family and you, you get your pets and your garden and so forth, it all comes into existence and then you're living in a mansion. If you're not, you can't live physically. No building can is worthy of the term. So it's actually a type of consciousness and that's your vehicle and that's your dwelling. They beautifully describe these dwellings of the gods, you know, dwellings of the angels as actually moving around in space, floating, and they're illuminated. There's light pouring out of them. They fly here and there, wherever you want to go. So this tells you that this emotion actually encompasses you and is movable. You don't want to be stuck in one place, do you? You don't want to have to like if you can only feel this loving kindness when you're in one certain place, you want it to move around with you at your will. So it's kind of like a very beautiful uh, yacht. <laughs> a yacht, yes. And we will also talk about, the Buddha uses these kind of terms of vehicles. So this is a vehicle, a raft also to get you across the river to safety. It is also, it sails on the ocean and you are not stuck on land. And so we are hopefully going to board this vehicle and you're going to learn how to sail it because you need the skills. And there's all kinds of forms of loving kindness. There's the canoe form, which is uh, when you're alone. Even when you're alone without anybody around, Loving kindness is a beautiful vehicle, very elegant, something like a canoe, but canoes require skills. You can see how easily it is to dump out of a canoe. <laughs> if the river is running fast, you need the skills. You can be comfortable in it if you know what you're doing. And you need to know what you're doing. What I mean by the river running fast is that even when you're alone, your life and the circumstances of your life are running fast around you and you have to be able to paddle and you have to know the techniques of how to move in that river. And sometimes you have to paddle upstream. You can't drift always downstream. If you do, if you give up paddling and just swirl off downstream, you end up going over the waterfall at the end. So there's going to be a number of techniques and practices and skills that we're going to develop and it's such a beautiful opportunity. And I hope that as you watch this at home or wherever you're undertaking this retreat, that you really decide to take a 10 day cruise and immerse yourselves in this. Now, some of you will be alone. You know, you're in you know, some sort of bachelor apartment alone watching a screen participating well you're you're in the canoe so it's a 10-day canoe trip for you 
Others are in the midst of their family, perhaps, or with other Sangha friends communicating. And so you're on kind of a larger raft or a boat. You have other passengers on it. And that can be also a very beautiful experience as well. But it's really nice to commit to the, the whole journey and not to get off at the end. This might be the beginning of a, a lifelong cruise. You may never return to land. And what is it to return to land? I'm perhaps to return to old ways of living, worldly ways, emotional structures that are painful, problematic, confused. Actually, we don't want to ever return to that. And sometimes 10 days is enough to change your entire future. So don't underestimate the possibilities of transformation over the next uh, 10 days. If you get a taste of this, if you get a taste for it, you will um, never forget it. Or you will be inclined never to forget it. Actually, you can forget it if, if the circumstances are problematic and you fall into it. You can lose it. And I know people who found their way into this, the vision of loving kindness when they were young, they were maybe teenagers or in their early years, and then they, some life got in the way and they got carried away. And then, and then they come looking for something they had then 30 years later, 40 years later sometimes. And then they recapture it. And the moment you get it again, it's like an old friend welcoming you back with a great hug. You're back. Back in this timeless, best of all dwellings. So if you manage to get this on this journey, then you need to keep it and be very careful of it. And so this is some of the teachings of the Buddha about the first thing is, can you find your way there? The second thing is to make a map of how you got there so you can get back there again easily. So you have to know your way to the, find your way to the docks, get on the boat, and then make sure you can find your way back there again. It's not just a lucky occurrence. And then you have to work on how to get back there quick. And then your next job is to see how long you can stay there. How long can you immerse in loving kindness? And the Buddha is very, very interested in you going deep. He wants you to go so deep, it pervades your dream life. Even when you're asleep, this loving kindness is pervading your consciousness, deep consciousness, even in your sleep, it is shaping the dream life, the emotions of the dream life, and should shape every level of your consciousness while you're awake as well. When you're walking down the street, when you go into a store, when you're alone, when you're having a coffee, looking out the window, all of that can be shaped in a very deep way so that it never departs. Night and day. And so this isn't just a little hobby. Oh, I took a 10 day retreat. I felt good. Now I have to go back and face the world and go back to the old strife and worry and struggle and anger and hostility and defensiveness. We, we don't have to actually, we can function like this because it's our 
interior life. It's no one else's. So this is also something that you need to uh, become the, the ruler of your inner life. It's uh, internal control is what it is. And at first it may be somewhat difficult and uh, takes effort and you have failures at it. But eventually if you do it enough, it does become second nature. And it's no longer taking a lot of effort. It just is there for you. And this is something also the Buddha is very big on training, not just hoping for some advent from the heavens, some lucky fortunate situation, or perhaps some sort of medicine that you take or magical thing. He says, don't look for those things. If it's like that, then there's no hope. It's because there is nothing like that, that there is hope. <laughs> you can do this and you can do it if you put in the right causes, because the emotional life is also subject to the rules of cause and effect. If it wasn't, there would be no hope, no possibilities. It's because there is cause and effect in your emotional and your conscious life that you can put in causes and you will get results that there is hope. And the Buddha, has instituted this 2,500 years ago, and we see, by all accounts, many, many, many thousands of people around him that encounter this have great success with it. Some of it, an astonishing level of virtuosity, of great accomplishment in this. They speak in praise of it, and it's not something that they did for two weeks and then lost it. It's something they did their entire life, and we, we have records of their entire lives. They're very closely observed. Monks and nuns live in communities and they know each other for their whole lives. And they're observed not just by one person or a little family, but by dozens or even hundreds of people. They see them constantly, day in and day out, over time. And basically, you get to know the depths of a person, how they are under all different circumstances. And they are observed as relentlessly kindly and well and radiant under all these different circumstances. So this is not just a tale, and this is not just a little temporary experience. This is a lifetime immersion and beyond. So Buddhism, of course, says don't think that this uh, is just one little life. This kind of exalted emotion that you can cultivate will go beyond this life indeed. So it's well worth doing. And very few things aside from this are worth it. Nothing is worth as much as this. No other activity will bring you the benefits of this. Of course, the world around you will be endlessly nattering about what are basically trivial little moments of happiness and trying to distract you from deeper levels of this well-being and happiness. But you must engage with wisdom and try to be supported by others who are have gotten some very positive results from this emotion. And of course, just uh, listening to Dhamma talks like this or encouragements for, for the cultivation of loving kindness is one way to support yourself in this. And this is, of course, 
one of the benefits of the media these days. It can work in both ways. It can be a terrible cause. It can poison your mind or it can also cure you. So you have to exercise your discretion and choose carefully what you listen to and what you watch in order to benefit and fulfill these deeper and higher possibilities of your own consciousness and your own heart. They are in there. You're not excluded from this, but you may need to search. And so this is why they call it the search, the spiritual journey, the search. There are friends along the way. And so the voices that encourage you and try to explain it to you and help you recover it, if you lose it, we always will be there to help you get it back. So this is what you need to do. And this is why we do all of this recording and try to make it available to you as easily as possible. This happens to be a very unique time in, in human history, I suppose, with the pandemic. And the title of this, this retreat is Serenity, Warmth, and Friendliness in the Midst of Winter. And this um, is specifically for that purpose. I'm looking around, it is winter, and the pandemic is on, and things are only getting worse in terms of how this is playing itself out. And this is exactly what we need to do. The worse it gets, the more you practice. The circumstances of your life, whatever they are, if they're difficult, that is the time for this practice of human warmth and reduction of uh, anxiety and fear. So this is also what is this loving kindness? What is this friendliness? It is the absence of fear and anxiety and depression, the absence of frustration. In the midst of all the real things that can go wrong in life, this friendliness it can remain and can lift you up and sail you right through it all. And you can also bring a few others along on the journey with you. If you can find it, then you have something to share with others as well. So this is why we do this. And we hope that you also will journey with us and benefit from this on this retreat. So I leave this opening talk for now. And we have much to look forward to and to explore and to unpack the teachings of the Buddha and uh, mine out this huge repository of golden similes, parables, analogies, stories, and to fashion some ornaments for you to wear and to beautify your inner experience. And we look forward to the journey. <laughs>